Welcome. Thank you for uh, for joining us today. Um, I am Dr. Kelly Victory, uh, flying solo today. Dr. Drew is tied up uh, with some other engagements. So I am holding down the fort uh, on my own uh, with a great guest. I have uh, really been looking forward to this show today um, with Dr. Brian Hooker, um, not because I'm solo hosting, but because I think it's going to be a really uh, interesting conversation. Um, Dr. Hooker just co-authored a book with Bobby Kennedy Jr. called Vax, Unvax, Let the Science Speak. Uh, really important work. This book looks at over a hundred studies in the peer-reviewed literature that interestingly considered the differences between vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. Um, every single one of the studies is analyzed and looks at the outcomes uh, from infants, children, and adults uh, based on their vaccination status. Uh, they come to some interesting conclusions. And what's important about this, I, I'm gonna give uh, further details about uh, Dr. Hooker's uh, background and, and how it is that he came to this when I bring him on in, in just a little bit. But the important thing and the reason I was so interested in this is because anyone who's been watching the recent shows, including uh, last week when I was on with uh, Dr. Joseph Freeman and Jessica Rose, and one of the things that I've really been hammering home in, in these last shows is that although the COVID pandemic has really shined a light um, on you know the uh, the tragedy that we're seeing right now with the mRNA vaccines and some problems, uh, significant problems related to the pandemic response, uh, the you know obsession with control and the fallacy of masking and social distancing, all of this stuff. What is important, I think, for people to know is that this is exposing a problem that has been decades in the making. Uh, the problems with our regulatory agencies, the fraud, the corruption, the lack of scientific rigor, the conflicts of interest, the capture of our scientific journals, uh, the co-option of physicians and physician groups, all of this long predated COVID people. Uh, and that's what I think we need to focus on. And what I love about this book uh, that that uh, Brian Hooker and Bobby Kennedy Jr. have put forth is that it really long predates COVID. Yes, there's a section on COVID in there, but they look at the hepatitis vaccinations and HPV vaccinations, and they really look with, at the lack of scientific rigor and expose and explain what it is that we haven't been doing. What are the studies that the CDC has refused to do? Uh, what you know? Why haven't they looked at these vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations with the kind of scientific rigor uh, that Dr. Hooker and Bobby Kennedy have? Um, so I think that's keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about this specific book. That the issues that we are seeing with COVID and the pandemic uh, long predated the the past three and a half years. Uh, this pandemic has just, I think, shined a very necessary light on it, uh, and we need to figure out how to fix this. Or, you know, just removing these mRNA vaccinations, for example, from the market will not fix the systemic problem that we have in our regulatory agencies. So uh, we'll take a, a break, go to our, uh, uh, get the business out of the way, as it were, and then I will come back and do a proper introduction of uh, Dr. Hooker. 
our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I think everyone knows the next medical crisis could be just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of another pandemic or something much more routine like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their physicians on like Dr. McCullough frequently. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals you can trust. And their new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy. It's really, it's a safety net. It's an insurance policy yeah, absolutely. that you hope you're not going to need. But if you need it, you sure as heck are going to wish you had it if you need it. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin, z -Pak. The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all these life-saving medications. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID-19, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured, knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to help you and your family stay safe from whatever life throws at you next. Go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com forward slash TWC. To get 10% off today, just click on that link. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar. Inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval, dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com slash Drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. Welcome. We are uh, going to be bringing back um, our guest, uh, Dr. Brian Hooker. Uh, doctor, as I said, I've been very excited about this because uh, Brian Hooker just co-authored a book with uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. that we're going to talk about in some depth. Uh, but regarding Dr. Hooker's uh, background, he is the welcome, welcome. Nice to have you, uh, Dr. Hooker. Thank is you. the uh, chief, the chief scientific officer of the Children's Health Defense, which is uh, an organization long dedicated to the protection of the and promotion of the health of children, not just in the United States, uh, but worldwide. Uh, you have a uh, an undergraduate degree, I understand, in chemical engineering and a PhD in biochemical uh, engineering. Your your list of of credits is quite long, including uh, five 
different patents. Uh, you've authored more than 65 uh, papers in the scientific and engineering literature, peer-reviewed literature that's uh, published internationally. And that includes more than 20 uh, papers on the epidemiology of vaccine injuries. Uh, I know that you've been involved for years now in exposing corruption in uh, in at the CDC and perhaps FDA uh, in particular with regard to vaccine safety and how those uh, studies, quote unquote, are actually are actually done. And then fast forward, you have now uh, co-authored this this book that I was talking about uh, before uh, the break with regard to comparing vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations. And I really do want to get into the weeds on that. Um, but let's start. I, you know, first of all, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're thrilled well, to have you, you, Dr. Kelly. And it's a, uh, it's a start privilege with this. to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, how is it that someone with uh, an undergraduate degree in um, in engineering, chemical engineering, and a PhD in biochemical engineering uh, becomes a vaccine expert? Uh, start with what what led you down that path. Well, actually, it started uh, when my son, uh, Stephen, who is now 25 years old, sustained a vaccine injury when he was about 15 months old. And um, on that particular day, he had an active ear infection and he received three different vaccines while having an active ear infection. And that was really, you know, it was in, in hindsight, uh, it, although the nurse practitioner said, oh, this is fine, we vaccinate sick kids all the time, it was contraindicated and he should not have received those vaccines um, because he was sick. And then the more that we delved into uh, sort of his medical frailty, some of his genetics, his genotype, uh, his, his biochemical makeup, we found that really his, his makeup was very, very unsuited to vaccination in general. And so, you know, what happened after his 15 month vaccines was that he fevered, and after he fevered, he sustained a very, very profound neurological injury um, due to neuroinflammation. He lost all eye contact, he lost all speech. And uh, then by the time, uh, it, you know, three months later at his well baby checkup at 18 months, he was diagnosed with full-blown autism. And so I was very pro-vaccine wow. up to that time. But uh, this was really, you know, a very, very much an eye opener watching it play out with with my my very own son. And, and it was very intuitive and very obvious something had gone wrong around his infant vaccinations. Let me just say, so prior to that vaccination date, was he meeting his was he would you would consider a, a normally developing child? He was meeting his his normal developmental milestones, things of that sort until that date. Well, he was he was sort of slow, normal. It was an interesting phenomenon because uh, back when my son was vaccinated, most of the vaccines that he received contained mercury through the uh, preservative called thimerosal. And so um, mercury was very toxic and it was especially toxic to his system in hindsight. So he was normal, but he was sort of lagging behind a little bit. Um, you, you know, he would he would pass his developmental milestones when we would take him into his well baby checkup. But even prior to that, we really felt like there, you know, there's something wrong here. 
And we want to get to the bottom of it um, be because it, it just, it seemed like things were progressing more slowly than, you know, obviously what we had desired. But then what happened at 15 months was truly cataclysmic. Yeah. And, and I was, it's, I told you before we came on, I was planning on sort of leading into an ending with your personal story. But since I asked you the question of how you got into this, um, I've, I've reversed the order and I, and I appreciate you being willing to share your, your own family experience with this. What you're saying is absolutely in line with what I've heard from so many people. And I think until I started really delving into this, and talking with people like Bobby Kennedy about it and others who have done a lot more research than I had, this story is the one you hear over and over again, that parents say, this child, something clearly happened that day. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't, you know, that that there was a, it was as if a switch flipped, that this child went from being, you know, relatively nor normal or relatively normal to profoundly abnormal. And it sounds like that was your experience as well. Absolutely. Um, prior to his 15 months vaccinations, he, he was uh, talking, he had about 10 words. He was walking uh, after his vaccination and after he fevered, then he would, he refused to walk unassisted. And it was almost like he had lost some of his equilibrium. And um, he, he stopped acknowledging us, uh, no more joint attention. Mm -hmm. And and just you know uh, looking away instead of looking looking at us directly, and and it just is seem seemed to really spiral very very quickly after those fifteen month shots, and and you know it was unheard of at that time. The typical age for a diagnosis of autism was 40, 42 months, and so mm -hmm. getting an early diagnosis at eighteen months was really you know we my wife and I were like we were you know, perplexed, befuddled, uh, obviously very, very sorrowful for what had happened. And, and all of a sudden we were faced with this diagnosis of autism. Were, were the pediatricians uh, or whoever you were seeing at the time uh, open to the idea? Did they acknowledge that this was likely vaccine related or, or not? No, the pediatrician and the nurse practitioner that actually gave us the advice uh, really had absolved vaccines from any type of harm uh, and, and would not talk to us about my son's vaccine injury. It wasn't until we were referred to an integrative pediatrician when my son was two years of age that uh, we got somebody to actually listen to us. And the integrative pediatrician said at the time, you know, looked at the laboratory results, looked at uh, some of the toxics that were coming out of my son's urine, feces, hair, uh, when we were doing simple challenges and said, you know, look, your son is a very, very toxic child, uh, no more vaccines. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, so this clearly, you know, is is the answer to the question: How is it that you know somebody who is a an engineer becomes mm -hmm. interested or fascinated in this particular topic and becomes an expert in it? Fast forward now and talk a little bit about way before you got into writing this book. You were involved in early 2000s and, and then certainly uh, in 2000, I think it was 12 or 13, uh, in exposing some 
you know, for lack of a better word, fraud, uh, fraudulence, corruption, whatever, with in terms of uh, the CDC's uh, testing or what they were doing with regard to vaccine safety testing. Talk a little bit about that and what was happening there. Absolutely. I started investigating the CDC in 2001 because they were starting to address the question of vaccines and autism. And back then, they were only looking at two real facets of a very, very complex problem. And they were looking at thimerosal, the mercury-containing preservative in vaccines and its relationship to autism. And then they were looking at the MMR vaccine and autism based on you know some of the early work of Dr. Andrew Wakefield. And so I started investigating uh, some of the answers that I was receiving from the CDC, you know, and I've, you know, I've got letters behind my name. I thought I'll just pick up the phone and I'll call these CDC scientists. And I was receiving some very, very unscientific answers, sort of a brusque uh, brush off of my concerns regarding vaccine safety. And I, you know, I had done statistics throughout my research. Uh, you know, I, I uh, had done it in graduate school. I worked in a Department of Energy National Laboratory. And so I knew that somebody was really trying to pull the wool over my eyes. And so I started to submit Freedom of Information Act requests to get to the bottom of what the private conversations were behind the scenes at the CDC regarding vaccines and neurodevelopmental disabilities such as autism. Well, fast forward to 2013, you know, and over this time I had really pounded the CDC with many, many Freedom of Information Act requests. But then all of a sudden in 2013, I received a phone call from one Dr. William Thompson, a senior epidemiologist in the immunization safety office at the CDC. And it was from his private line. And Dr. Thompson really started to confess some of the fraud that I had uh, been aware of and I had been suspecting all of these years. And Dr. Thompson really not only uh, exposed this fraud by sharing um, about 10,000 pages worth of emails with me, uh, having many, many phone conversations with me, exchanging emails uh, uh, time and time again, almost on a daily basis, uh, but he also pointed me to data that I could reanalyze that basically showed that there was a strong statistically significant relationship primarily between the timing of the MMR vaccine and autism. And the two groups that really stood out in that analysis were African-American males who were three times as likely to get an autism diagnosis if they got the MMR on time compared to if they waited until after 36 months of age. And then also what's called isolated autism or regressive autism, like my son who regressed into autism. That group also showed a significant relationship between the timing of the MMR vaccine and autism incidents. And so uh, the whistleblower actually, uh, Dr. Thompson came forward uh, publicly with his confessions in August of 2014. Um, I ended up publishing a paper based on those results. After the whistleblower story broke, my paper was retracted. It was, uh, it was very, very difficult. You know, I was the type of child that uh, in, in high school, I never got detention. So getting a retraction of a paper, and it was under the most dubious of circumstances, the journal actually never told me why the paper was retracted. So I went ahead and I republished the information and it appeared in another journal in 2018. 
Um, and so this whole whistleblower story, the story of Dr. William Thompson, then became the subject of a movie called Max, cover up to catastrophe that came out in 2016. And many, many people saw that movie, uh, Vaxxed. It was supposed to appear at the Tribeca Film Festival, and it was, uh, it was uh, taken out of the lineup very, very quickly, but that piqued the public's interest. And so uh, many, many people then were wondering why, you know, why did they take this movie out? Why do people not want us to see this movie? And so the CDC whistleblower story of Dr. William Thompson and myself then uh, gained a lot of notoriety, a lot of traction uh, uh, through, you know, through that time, through 2016 and beyond. So, all right. So just to clarify, Brian, so Dr. Thompson disclosed to you and then subsequently made public that the seat, if I understand that yes. not only that, that, that the CDC, that, that there was a connection between autism and specifically the MMR vaccines, but that the CDC was fully aware of it. Is that what you're saying? That, that the C, this, this was information that, that the CDC had and was failing to disclose to the public or denying? I mean, what, what was the CDC's stance on it? The CDC's official stance has always been vaccines do not cause autism, and you can actually visit a CDC website that says that. But as of November 7th, 2001, they had come up with a statistically significant relationship, and it had been shared with the highest levels of management at the CDC. Indeed, the director of the CDC at the time, Dr. Julie Gerberding, knew that the CDC scientists had found a relationship. And then she specifically in 2004, when the uh, fraudulent pediatrics paper came out that had altered data in it, she participated in the cover-up herself. And uh, when Dr. Okay. Thompson back in 2004 tried to warn her, he was put on administrative leave of absence. And so, you know, CDC has known for many, many years that this relationship uh, is has existed, but they but they keep it in the dark. They they have never brought this to light, and you know it's it's truly unfortunate. I think of the many many people uh, whose lives could be spared uh, having a family member with autism, uh, having autism themselves, uh, because there again it was a strong, undeniable, statistically significant relationship. And and I, we're going to cut to a break first and, and then come back and get into this as well as the book. But before I do, I want to make this as a, you know, in, in the spirit of full disclosure, I, Dr. Kelly Victory, up until probably three years ago, have said, I mean, I can't even count how many times I made the statement, quote, there is no credible evidence that vaccines are associated with autism. And I say that not with pride. I said it because... We as physicians, and this is the existential crisis that I and others in my in my industry are in. I relied on the information that I believed was correct. I relied on what the CDC, the FDA, the scientific journals were saying. I went to the source. I went to the studies. And there were no studies that were available because they were hiding it. They had the information and they did not allow us to see it. And so I and others, I truly, Brian, believed that there was no evidence of it, that there was not a, a scintilla of scientific literature that supported the association. And I am horrified now 
really, to find that this was, that I was duped. I was lied to. It's not that I was lazy and didn't look. It's that I, I was not allowed to avail myself of the literature, of the studies that were available that had been done because clearly the CDC knew and I am angry about it. I am, you know, sad about it. And I have, you know, truly done everything I can now to expose this and to bring people like you who have known about this, to give them a platform to be able to share this with others because I think it's critically important. But again, this long predated COVID people and it long predated the debacle that we are seeing with these mRNA vaccines. And so we have got to really uh, do this deep analysis and, and look into what did the CDC know, when did they know it, and why were they hiding it? So uh, with that, we'll go to a quick break and then come back. And I want to uh, dive a little bit more into the specifics of what happened uh, back in 2012, 13, 14 with the whistleblower, and then get into the weeds on your, on your book. So we'll be back in a minute. Fall is right around the corner, which means dry, flaky red skin from allergy season is coming with it. But the best way to take care of your skin is with our skincare secret, Genucel. You don't need to worry about that puffy, tired eye look or those annoying dark spots or even dry, flaky skin because Genucel skincare has you covered. Susan and I love our Genucel products so much, we want you to try our personally curated skincare bundles. It's risk-free at genucel.com slash Drew. Genucel works so well, you can see the results in this unplanned live moment on our show when the Redness Repair Cream repaired my skin in just minutes right before your eyes. Their concentrated vitamin C serum helps keep your skin plump and hydrated. Plus, with their immediate effects, you can see astonishing results in under 12 hours. Quick, effective, and easy. Go to genucel.com slash Drew right now to try our bundles and save over 60% today. And remember to enroll in Genucel's world-class concierge program for additional savings and free shipping. Don't wait. It's genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. I want to share with you a teeth whitening system that goes beyond merely enhancing your smile. Primal Life Organics Real White Teeth Whitening System offers convenience and rapid results without harsh chemicals. Light, blue light for whitening, red light for gum and oral hygiene, and you can just do both if you wish. Works naturally, promoting gum healing, tooth remineralization, gives you a brighter and a healthier smile. Again, no peroxide involved. Consistent usage yields remarkable results. Take this opportunity to transform your smile and at the same time, optimize your oral health. Aim for five times a week for the best outcomes. Discover more about this remarkable teeth whitening system and other products at drdrew.com slash primal today. That again is drdrew.com slash P-R-I-M-A-L. Be sure to use that link for 60% off drdrew.com slash P-R-I-M-A-L. Do it today for 60% off. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. 
Yeah. Welcome back. My my guest today is Dr. Brian Hooker, uh, Chief Scientific Officer of the Children's Health Defense and uh, co-author of a recent book with uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. called Vax Unvax, uh, Let the Science Speak. Um, it, it occurred to me at the break, Brian, that uh, one of the things just to level set for those people who might not be familiar with uh, the term uh, thimerosal um, and the concept that va- vaccines uh, you know, there's the active ingredient, uh, for example, in the current COVID vaccines, the active ingredient is the mRNA. But there are a lot of uh, ingredients that we are told are inert, or what we would call adjuvants um, in, in medicine that are things that are added in addition to the active ingredient. Uh, and at the time, thimerosal, which is a, essentially a mercury containing preservative, was added to vaccines to uh, enhance their shelf life. Um, other adjuvants or things are added to vaccines commonly like aluminum. Um, aluminum specifically was added to some vaccines because it increased the inflammatory response and that was felt to be a uh, helpful that if you increase inflammation, you will get uh, a better uh, immune response as a result. Um, But many times what I think we are finding out is that these adjuvants, it's the additional things, whether it's the thimerosal, the aluminum, the lipid nanoparticles in the case of the COVID vaccines, that by themselves are toxic and create real havoc. Uh, And so I think that it sounds like in your son's case, that you believe that it was the mercury component that that may have induced much of his problem. Is that correct? I believe so. I think that a lot of his problem was mercury. And when we tested him, indeed, when we looked at, you know, hair metals, uh, urine metals and fecal metals, when when we just did mild detoxification, mercury really started to pour out of his system very, very rapidly. And, you know, to, to, a, a, to the extent that at one point his hair clippings would have been considered toxic waste because the mercury levels were uh-huh. so, so high. And, and so that really played a, a strong factor. He also received the oral polio vaccine, which is no longer on the market. It's a live virus vaccine. Um, and, and I believe that that was responsible for a lot of the inflammation that we saw, especially after his 15 months vaccinations. And so, you know, I think that it's, it's a difficult to say, is it one thing? Um, sure. these, these children genetically, are hyperaccumulators of toxins. They do not detoxify well. And so, you know, it, it was sort of a constellation of things, including, I think, most certainly vaccines and vaccine components. But we were also finding in his system things like uh, fire retardant components, anemone from from uh, fire retardants that were, you know, his baby clothes were soaked in as a part of the manufacture, arsenic in the mm-hmm. water. And so a lot of things in the environment were starting to accumulate in his system. But primarily, you know, like I said, it was the mercury that we we just barely did interventions to uh, to chelate it or to chemically remove it from his system. And then it really just started pouring out. Well, you know, the body doesn't uh, clear heavy metals like mercury or lead. You know, uh, mercury is actually, other than lead, probably the most neurotoxic uh, heavy metal that we know. And if you look at the vaccine schedule, there's been a lot of focus on this recently. When I was growing up, uh, the average, you know, the number of, of vaccines on the cho- 
childhood schedule was between six and eight, depending on where you lived. Um, that has right. now burgeoned to 72. So if you give a tiny, tiny amount of a toxic material, and you're getting a total of six or eight of them during your life, I'm not saying it's great, but the amount of heavy metal, for example, that you might accumulate is very different than if you're getting, you know, dozens and dozens of them. So, and if you look at the curves of things like autism or autoimmune diseases, asthma, peanut allergies, whatever you want to look at, uh, they go up exponentially along with this increase in the vaccination schedule. So, uh, it, you know, obviously, uh, uh, correlation does not mean causation, but you sure as heck, uh, we are obligated to be looking at that as a potential cause for the increase in these in these conditions. Just to to bring uh, home this conversation we're having about what you discovered by with the whistleblower um, and the CDC back in 2012 and 13, did the CDC ever? address this? Uh, what was the resolution of this bombshell that Dr. Thompson revealed to you and that you subsequently brought to the public from the CDC's perspective? Well, it's interesting because I filed a complaint with the Department of Health and Human Services, what's called the Office of Research Integrity, because I, I felt like there was scientific malfeasance and fraud that had definitely taken place at the CDC. And Dr. Thompson even described an incident where they actually wheeled in large recycle bins and they threw away all of the results that had existed regarding the African-American effect you know, that the African-American males were having higher incidence of autism when they got the MMR vaccine on time. And so I felt that it was important to file a formal complaint to expose this. Dr. Thompson mm -hmm. on the inside filed a similar complaint also with the Office of Research Integrity. And then finally, uh, after going back and forth with that office, they said, well, we're going to have the CDC investigate themselves. And so the CDC needs to have an internal investigation. And I don't know about you, Dr. Kelly, but every time I investigate <laughs> myself, I come smelling out, uh, come out smelling like a rose. And so that's exactly what happened. And after a three-year protracted investigation, I was interviewed several times uh, on recorded interviews with my attorney there. Um, given testimony, then the CDC produced a report that went to the Office of Research Integrity, and it said that it was a scientific difference of opinion, that the, that the, what the whistleblower wow. and Dr. Hooker had, uh, contended was boiled down to a scientific uh, research misunderstanding of what the actual results were. And so it was very, very uh, perplexing and, and very, very dissatisfactory at that particular point in time. We could have pursued uh, further actions, but the Office of Research Integrity at that point in the Department of Health and Human Services just shut down the entire investigation. Unbelievable. Well, we are seeing that more and more, as everybody knows, not just with the CDC and FDA, but whether it's the DOJ, the FBI, you know, that we've got the fox guarding the hen house. Uh, it, Dr. Freeman said that in a recent show, you know, he, that he doesn't buy a Samsung television based on the reviews that are written by Samsung. Um, and, and that's ex exactly the, the case. Uh, we know when we go to buy a vacuum cleaner to read independent reviews. Uh, so the idea that the CDC is investigating itself uh, by itself is just laughable and, and certainly suspect. Um, I want to turn now to, to the actual book. 
uh, vax, unvax, uh, let the science speak. Now, my understanding of you know the book, you really you looked at a number of studies, a hundred or some studies that are published that compare the two different populations, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. So talk talk us through the premise of the book and what these studies show in, in terms of, you know, what are they comparing? What are the two groups that they're comparing and what are they, what are the outcomes, uh, Brian, that they were looking at? Well, the book, the premise of the book was we wanted to find studies and that's uh, Mr. Kennedy actually contacted me in 2019 and said, let's look at the National Library of Medicine, the PubMed website, and let's find studies where they compared the health outcomes of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and vaccinated versus unvaccinated adults. And I'd like to for you to distill these down into really understandable graphics that I can feature on my Instagram account. And so when he approached me, I thought, oh, we'll find maybe a, a few studies, maybe close to a dozen, but then 60 studies into it, and two years later, with 60 Instagram posts by Mr. Kennedy, then uh, he was deplatformed from Instagram and Facebook. And we found so many of these studies that were just hiding in plain sight. And we finally decided, well, let's put this in a book. This is a book. And so we continued our research through the COVID-19 era. And now we have over 100 studies. Some of the studies focus on the entire vaccination schedule. So we're looking at entirely unvaccinated children versus those who have followed the CDC schedule or are partially vaccinated. And then some focus on some very specific vaccines or vaccine conditions like vaccines in pregnancy, uh, the COVID-19 shot, uh, uh, obviously uh, the MMR vaccine and live virus vaccines, the hepatitis B vaccine and so forth. And what we were looking at specifically were what were the chronic health outcomes, the overall health, you know, chronic diseases, and what were the uh, rates of infectious disease like in these very, very different populations. So let's start with where does one find a, a population of unvaccinated children? For example, I would think maybe the Amish or Mennonite communities. We know that they uh, commonly don't vaccinate. Perhaps what uh, inner city or you know, are you talking about third world countries where they don't have access to vaccines, and therefore, yeah, where, where does one find a population of unvaccinated people? Well, these are among the normal population of U.S. citizens, and uh, that that would include uh, specific groups that don't vaccinate, like the Amish. But there are groups, you know, there are families that make health decisions and choices for their mm -hmm. children, where the children are completely unvaccinated. Uh, the CDC has their own database, their own private database called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, and it has over 10 million patients in it. It's comprised of 10 HMOs. And I would estimate, I've, I've actually been in the database. I was one of the few researchers that was allowed in before access was completely shut down. Uh, I was in the database and I estimate that there are at least 10,000 unvaccinated individuals in that database. So you find these individuals among society. They're not necessarily in, in uh, specific religious sects or, or different types of groups. Okay. 
but they're ones that they're, you know, they've made medical choices not to vaccinate. And so it does, you know, in, in some of the, some, some of the studies, they turn to a survey of homeschool students and homeschool parents. Mm-hmm. Some, uh, like studies that I've completed myself, we looked at medical records from pediatricians in uh, uh, medical offices where they allowed unvaccinated patients, unvaccinated children within their practices. And so um, they, they were essentially, you know, this, this group of individuals is really hiding in plain sight. And much like the research studies that really uh, started to come out in earnest uh, those comparing the entire vaccination schedule in 2017 um, have shown a, a real difference in chronic health outcomes and then also uh, uh, different rates of infections between vaccinated and unvaccinated children as well as vaccinated and unvaccinated adults. So when you talk about rate, different rates of infection, Brian, are you talking specifically about different rates of infection from the thing for which they are being vaccinated, you know, i.e. chickenpox or, or measles or mumps or shingles, whatever it is? Or are you talking about infection rates? And give me some idea of what you what the findings show with regard to overall health and then also with regard to these infection rates. Well, in terms of infection rates, the two things, the two metrics that were looked at uh, by several different studies that we found were um, ear infections and respiratory infections, including pneumonia. And consistently, unvaccinated children had four times less ear infections and four times less incidence of respiratory infections and pneumonia as compared to their vaccinated counterparts. There were some instances, there were a few papers, especially around the influenza vaccine that showed that children and adults who received the influenza vaccine were indeed more susceptible for hospitalization due to influenza complications than their unvaccinated counterparts. For the most part, we didn't, you know, we didn't like look at chickenpox incidents uh, from the chickenpox vaccine or measles okay. incidents from the measles vaccine. We were more looking at infectious disease in general. Okay, but that's really important. So what you're saying is you're not talking about just that these kids are at, you know, if you're not vaccinated, that you you may have a risk of getting chickenpox because you weren't vaccinated for chickenpox. These kids are healthier, these unvaccinated people, not just children, were healthier overall. They didn't get sick as much from other things totally unrelated to the thing for which they may have not have been vaccinated. Uh, and that, I think, is what you know, fast forward to COVID, we certainly are seeing people who are multiply vaccinated have a suppression of their immune response overall that goes far beyond just COVID. They are getting sick with all kinds of things, including cancers. Um, so really, that that's an interesting thing that, that this was known or at least evidenced in studies well, again, before before COVID. Um, talk a little bit about one of the things that I think people don't understand is the lack, total lack of scientific rigor and the, um, the poorly constructed studies that the CDC and FDA have run on vaccines in general. For example, one thing that you know, I'd like you to speak to is the fact that the FDA rarely does studies where the control group is actually given a true placebo. 
In other words, one group gets the HPV vaccine and the other person, other group gets, you know, saline, salt water. Instead, you know, talk, talk about it, which is what a true control group should be. One group gets the, you know, the, uh, the active thing and the other group gets, you know, pure placebo, a dummy shot. But that's not what has happened in the vast majority of vaccine studies, correct? Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. When you look at the HPV vaccine that you referred to, the clinical trials for uh, GlaxoSmithKline's entry, I'm sorry, uh, Merck's entry into the market, the Gardasil vaccine, the control group uh, received an aluminum adjuvant called uh, amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate, and it had never been tested. So the control group was getting an adjuvant that had not been tested. There were about 3,000 young women in the control group and about 5,000 that received the vaccine. And the aluminum, aluminum is a neurotoxin. Aluminum also causes immune dysregulation. And so the rate of autoimmune disorders among the control group and among the experimental group that got the Gardasil vaccine was about 2.3% or two out of 10 women uh, or two of, excuse me, 100 women came down with a severe autoimmune disorder as a part of the clinical trial. And Merck said, oh, well, it's the same as the control, so there must not be a problem. And, right. and over and over again, you look at the hepatitis B vaccine, you look at the MMR vaccine, um, you look at uh, the Gardasil 9 vaccine, where they used the original Gardasil as the control. They do not use saline placebos, which has Right. Then this has been the gold standard for all other drugs and biologics, except for vaccines. The FDA gives vaccines a pass and you do not have to use a placebo control for a vaccine because, quote unquote, it would be irresponsible and unethical to withhold life-saving vaccines from this population of children. But it's okay with stage four cancer patients to give them placebos, but somehow right. vaccines pass. No, th this is really unbelievable. So you're saying that you know you're talking about quote testing a vaccine, and the the quote control groups in most of the studies either got as you said something totally toxic like this aluminum adjuvant, um, or in other studies the control group got a different vaccine. So they still got a different they they got they didn't get you know the vaccine they were testing, but the control was that they got you know the shingles vaccine or they got the chickenpox vaccine. They got some other vaccine, and as far as I can see, it's nothing more than a way for the FDA to hide to 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 really hide adverse events in uh, in the study group because they can say, yep, yeah, see, both groups ended up with autoimmune issues, or both groups ended up with some people getting Guillain-Barre, or both groups ended up with people with Bell's palsy, or, or whatever the adverse event is, because the control group didn't actually get a dummy shot of salt water. They got something that was equally toxic, um, just different from the toxicity caused by the, the vaccine that was being studied. And this is something that goes back, that dates back to, I believe, you know, for, for decades. It was exposed certainly in the book Turtles All the Way Down. And, and I, you know, understand that you have really addressed this again in your in your study um give us an idea of the range brian if you would of different vaccines that were covered in the studies uh, that that you and uh and bobby kennedy exposed in in your book well the criteria for 
getting a study in the book was that there had to be an unvaccinated control. We really want to be very precise in that. And so we looked at and found 100 studies. And the way that they sort of clustered out was that there were, uh, there were about 10 studies or so, I think 10 or 11 studies on the entire vaccination schedule where vaccinated versus unvaccinated children uh, had been compared. Also, uh, there were uh, there was a substantial amount of work that focused on thimerosal, the mercury-containing preservative that is still in some formulations of the flu shot, even those flu shots given to pregnant women. Uh, so we found some vax unvax studies uh, regarding thimerosal-containing vaccines. Uh, also, the MMR and other live virus vaccines, including the rotavirus vaccine and the uh, uh, certain formulations, older formulation of the polio vaccine, and uh, then uh, vaccines in pregnancy. We wanted to feature that. That is, to me, from a marketing perspective, that's uh, the vaccine manufacturer's uh, new frontier is prenatal vaccines. And so we wanted to include that section. We found some uh, studies on the flu shot in, given in pregnancy, the Tdap given in pregnancy, and then now the COVID-19 vaccine, which was recommended for pregnant women, uh, specifically in the United States. Uh, in addition to that, we looked at the influenza shot, and we looked at um, and wanted to include a chapter and actually were able to find about 30 vaccinated versus unvaccinated studies where they compared outcomes to the COVID-19 shot as well. Uh, there was another chapter that was quite fascinating on vaccines and Gulf War illness. It wasn't specific to the anthrax vaccine, although that was one of the components that was featured in the literature that we were, uh, we were able to find. And so uh, it's, it's quite an exhaustive treatise uh, because it was limited to vaccinated versus unvaccinated uh, studies only, we could not find any studies for the DTaP vaccine, the diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis vaccine. And so, you know, that's sort of woefully missing from the book. And, and, and it also shows some real holes in the scientific literature around vaccinations. These are the studies that the federal officials really need to do. And even the prestigious Institute of Medicine in 2013 said that vaccinated versus unvaccinated outcomes are needed. They need to know the overall effect of the vaccination schedule. And so, you know, part of the take home message besides these 100 studies were the holes that we found within vaccine safety science. You know, one of the things that occurs to me, Brian, despite what we have seen uh, during the COVID debacle uh, and, and that we've been fed this idea that these are safe and effective vaccines, despite the fact that they have no safety data and they don't stop you from contracting the disease for which they were developed, um, you know, the, the, a, a vaccine prior to COVID was intended to stop you from contracting the, the illness. Um, and the line that we were certainly led and that we learned in medical school was that Vaccines are one of the great public health successes. We have eradicated polio, uh, you know, or, or you know, uh, significantly decreased its uh, you know, the incidence. We have uh, fundamentally decreased the you know the the problems from things like measles, mumps, rubella, those sorts of things. Um, it it 
now it's becoming more and more clear that that is not the case, that the incidence of polio, for example, was uh, precipitously declining well prior to the rollout of the, the mass rollout of polio vaccines and that the vaccination likely uh, had very little to do with the significant decrease in polio. When you look at these different um, populations, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, did you see in any of the studies that the unvaccinated populations were suffering from significant outbreaks or incidents of these various diseases for which they were not vaccinated? In other words, do unvaccinated populations end up with measles, mumps, polio, you know, rubella, chickenpox, you know, or not? We did see um, an increased incidence in chickenpox among the unvaccinated. As compared to the vaccine, it, it was it it was sort of a, a control test for vaccine effectiveness for the chickenpox, and I believe there was another study that actually saw more pertussis in the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated. And outside of that, that was really about it. You know, measles outbreaks are are very very rare. Uh, mumps outbreaks are less rare, but they were have been understudied. The mumps portion of the MMR vaccine is perhaps the worst portion of that vaccine. It, it does not uh, uh, prevent the mumps and it's actually right. a part of a uh, of a part of a lawsuit called a, a Quitam lawsuit um, uh, involving Merck, the, the manufacturer of, of that particular vaccine. Um, but other than that, we did not see, you know, this massive amounts of suffering due to infectious disease. And as you pointed out, things like polio were really on the decline. You know, this is an enteric virus. You find it in human feces. And so as sanitation techniques became much more sophisticated, as, you know, society was spending less and less time away from standing sewage or open sewage, uh, then these uh, many of these diseases, if not most of these diseases, especially the mortality associated with these diseases, was well on the decline prior to the introduction of vaccination. Um, go back. You said you mentioned something that I was not familiar with until I was looking into your book. I think it's called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, you you called it, yes. from, that the CDC has this repository. Uh, tell us more about what that is and why it sounds like it's now, you know, super double top secret. Nobody can actually look at the, the you know, it's under lock and key. Uh, what is it and, and why did they lock it down? Well, the Vaccine Safety Data Link. Uh, was started in the 1990s. Uh, the first year that they recorded records was 1991. And it is all the medical records of 10 different health maintenance organizations across the United States. And these have been compiled. They're not just vaccine records. And there are more medical, you know, every encounter that these patients have with a medical professional, along with their uh, diagnosis codes, along with their procedure codes, along with their chart notes for all these individuals. It's all de-identified, so there's no way that you can identify a patient, you know, based on the records in the vaccine safety data link. And um, the the public through taxpayer dollars spends about $30 million a year in order for CDC to maintain this particular database. And among the 10 million individuals, there are over 2 million children within the database. And like I said, you, you know, I, 
I was one of the few that snuck in and was a programmer and actually saw the vaccine safety data link. And, and I would contend that there were, you know, it's not based on vaccination status. You can be unvaccinated and be in the vaccine safety data link. And I would contend that there were at least 10,000 unvaccinated individuals in that database. Now, access was given, limited access was given to several researchers in the early 2000s. And the two researchers that I worked with, Dr. Mark and David, and David Geyer, David Geyer was Dr. Mark's son, um, actually did many, many studies specifically regarding thimerosal, the mercury-containing preservative. And what we found when we were in the vaccine safety data link was that, sure enough, neurological difficulties follow mercury poisoning. So if you inject mercury into somebody, then we see neurological problems, you know, learning delays, speech delays, tics, um, ADD, ADHD, autism, all were related to thimerosal containing vaccines. And then after several papers were published, the CDC decided that they did not like the results that the Geyers and I were publishing. And so we were summarily kicked out of the vaccine safety data link. And, and it, even, even the effort to get into the vaccine safety data link, it actually took congressional intervention for the Geyers to get this access. Uh, but when we were kicked out, it was like the door slammed shut. And now that is a data repository for CDC employees, and I believe other federal employees uh, only. Wow. So, so it would, has anyone actually, and if anybody could do it, it would be Bobby Kennedy. Has anybody uh, filed a FOIA you know, request on this? I mean, it seems to me that that's data that should be available for scientific review. I mean, what, where does that stand? I personally have filed three separate FOIA requests to get the vaccine safety data link data. The first time I filed a FOIA request, the CDC replied that they could not give me the information without identifying the, uh, the, the personal information of the patients within the vaccine safety data link. Now that I've been in that, I know that's ludicrous. That, that is right. absolutely I'm a non-truth. Um, and, and then, you know, the other times, they would refer me to a program where if I submitted a proposal to each one of the HMOs institutional review boards, so I would have to go through the institutional review boards of 10 HMOs and each institutional review board has a fee associated with it, then they might be able to look at specific projects where they would might give me limited years of the VSD of the vaccine safety data link. But really, you know, what it's amounted to, Dr. Kelly, is it's sort of a 20-year plan to nowhere. The closer and closer that I got to data in my process, the further and further the process had to go. And so, you know, I was filibustered my way out of getting information, the vaccine safety data link. And that has been the experience of many, many frustrated scientists who have needed to get into this database and independent individuals, people independent of CDC, which is a captured agency, need to be able to get in and access that information. Absolutely. And this is the thing I'm trying to, one of the things I'm trying to uh, bring focus on is that th this is, this corruption, um, this fraud, th this uh, really, these roadblocks that the CDC and other agencies are throwing up to the evaluation of data that is available 
really needs to be exposed in this long, long predated COVID. Um, I want to make sure that people don't come away with the idea that the only problem with these vaccines is the thimerosals, the you know the mercury containing ones. Um, so you know, it, to be clear, these issues that you found or, or big differences, I should say, between vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations pertains not just to those vaccines, if I understand you correctly, that contained mercury. That these were differences independent of the mercury. Is that right? That is correct. Many of the studies that we feature in the book. Um, look at the entirety of the vaccination that includes, you know, sort of myriad contaminants, you, you know, mercury, aluminum, formaldehyde, polysorbate 80, which is a detergent used to solubilize the viruses and extract the viruses, you know, other components that are of extreme concern, you know, to me, both as a parent as well as a researcher. And so, you know, we, we've looked collectively at the vaccination schedule as well as the different component vaccines. And yes, by no means, you, you know, thimerosal to me with my son was really the tip of the iceberg. But when you start to peel back, you know, the layers on uh, the, the vaccine schedule, you see so many problems that are associated with it, so many contaminants. Uh, that uh, became in higher and higher concentrations as they added more and more vaccinations to the schedule. Got it. All right. Well, so now fast forward, and we've got where the clock is winding down. So I want to fast forward for the last couple of minutes and talk about the COVID vaccines, the M, specifically the mRNA vaccines. Um, yes which are clearly highly problematic. So talk a little bit about what you found there. You know, the, one of the reasons of, that I'm more and more concerned about these, Brian, is because, as you undoubtedly know, you know, every 15 minutes they're cranking out a new booster, um, you know, none of which have been tested, uh, none of them. I, and they are acting as if they don't need to because they're comparing it to the influenza vaccines. They say, see, we don't test those every year, uh, even though it's a different, it's a different strain. But that's a totally different technology. Uh, the mRNA platform, that mRNA technology has not been fully vetted. It has not been proven safe and effective. It has fraught with problems and it has failed over and over again. Yet here we are with them, as I said, cranking out a new one every five minutes uh, with zero testing behind it. Talk a little bit about what you uncovered with regards specifically to the COVID vaccines and the mRNA vaccines in your book. Well, I was actually quite surprised when uh, Mr. Kennedy and I started looking through the literature for the COVID-19 vaccines. We thought, well, this is a new vaccine. There won't be a whole lot of information. But we found 30 vax unvax studies on the COVID vaccine alone, looking at long-term implications, things like myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, shingles, uh, Bell's palsy, uh, sudden sensory neural hearing loss, um, other, you know, other types of maladies. And so it became very, very evident, uh, ischemic stroke, um, uh, myocardial infarction, uh, blood disorders, it and it became very, very evident that something cataclysmic was really going on with these new untested vaccines. And although the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine in the United States have been FDA approved, some of the clinical trials that as a part of those approvals process, some of those trials aren't done until 2026. So how do we know now, 
you know, in 2023, what the outcomes of those trials will be. The other thing that really jumped out is through another database called the CDC's uh, Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And this is a passive surveillance system that um, patients and practitioners that's, that experience a vaccine injury or have a vaccine injury in their practice, they can report these to the CDC and they will end up in this database. And you look at what happened when the COVID vaccine was introduced, all of a sudden the VAERS database exploded and you know there were a million, there were, are nearly a million vaccine adverse events claims in the VAERS database since the rollout of the COVID-19 shots. If you compare that to the rest of the history, I'm sorry, the rest of the history of that database, which has been in process for 32 years, uh, the rest of the 32 year history of VAERS only has 800,000 vaccine injuries. So in the past three years, we've had more vaccine injuries because of the COVID-19 shot than in the rest of the 32 year history of that particular program. Deaths exploded in, in that program. Um, there were 18,000 deaths reported. And again, VAERS is woefully underreported. So we know there are many, many more deaths associated with the COVID shot. If you look at the 32 year history of, of VAERS for deaths for all the other vaccines, there's 5,000. So 18,000 for COVID, 5,000 for the 32-year the history prior to the COVID-19 shot. And, you know, other things like fertility problems, you're seeing 10 times as many fertility problems for this vaccine than all of the rest of the vaccines combined. And so it was really, you know, to me, it sent shockwaves even in the CDC um, because the, the VAERS program was overwhelmed with vaccine injury reports from the start. They are so backlogged with vaccine injury reports that some of the reports that are now being released date back to 2021. And so it's taken them two years to process the backload of vaccine injuries that have been reported to the COVID-19 shot. No, I, I have been highlighting this issue, Brian, on the VAERS thing uh, from the very beginning. And to be clear again, the VAERS system, they own it. The CDC, the FDA, the NIH, it's their system. They designed it. It's not like a bunch of you know rogue scientists designed this thing and the CDC doesn't want to, uh, to own it. It is their system and they have abdicated the responsibility to, to look at it. Uh, just to put it in perspective, the swine flu vaccine in 1976 was recalled from the market when there were a total of 50 uh, associated deaths or deaths that people thought might have been related to that vaccination. It was pulled from the market and never uh, relaunched, 50 versus the tens of thousands that we now have uh, reported to VAERS. So really, really troubling. And again, this is stuff that uh, long predated COVID. I have uh, huge concerns about these vaccines and what we're seeing and the fact that they are continuing to call them safe and effective. We are continuing to make the, the current vaccines for COVID are only available under emergency use authorization. As of today, there still is not a single FDA approved uh, injection for COVID, uh, yet they are pushing them on the public and, and even talking about requiring them in some places. Uh, which I just think is unconscionable. Um, before I let you go, you've been very generous with your time. Are there anything else that I, I didn't hit on in the book that you think, wow, you missed this big bombshell? Is there anything else in the book that people should, should know about as a teaser? Absolutely. I, I really would like to focus on the, on the uh, chapter on vaccines and pregnancy. 
And mm -hmm. prenatal vaccines are really sort of the new market entry of vaccination manufacturers. It, se it seems like it's the new frontier as prenatal vaccines. The RSV vaccine was just approved by the FDA in pregnancy to be given anywhere between 20, 26 and 34 weeks gestation. Um, and so that's added onto uh, multiple COVID-19 vaccines that are recommended during pregnancy. Uh, you know, some women got as many as two COVID shots plus a booster all during that gestational period, plus a flu shot, plus the Tdap vaccine. And then, like I said before, the flu shots could contain, if they come from multivotes vials, they come, they contain mercury. If you get it the same day as the Tdap, then you get mercury and aluminum together, which have synergistic toxicity. And so, you know, I really want to highlight that. And Mr. Kennedy really wanted to highlight that in the book. And so we had a separate chapter regarding vaccinations and pregnancy. And we looked specifically at the flu shot, the Tdap shot, and then some new studies that came out regarding the COVID-19 vaccine, not only in pregnancy, but also affecting fertility parameters. I, I honestly can't think of anything more important, uh, Brian, than that. Um, I've long said that the human immune system is the last great frontier of medicine. Uh, the immune system does not always respond in the way that we anticipate that it will. We can't always predict what it's going to do. And the idea of giving pregnant women and therefore an unborn fetus and a baby these injections when we have no idea what we are doing to the immune system of that child. And we are bringing, we are modifying it, modulating it, uh, impacting it in ways that we don't fully understand before that child is born, um, I think is just, it is, it's horrific, frankly. And it, it certainly breaches the most fundamental concept uh, of all in medicine, which is first do no harm. Um, I think it's, it's something that we have got to address. So I'm really happy to hear that you guys have a chapter on that. Um, I look forward to reading the book. Thank you. Thank you for your time, for your commitment to this. I, I'm sorry for the, the thing, you know, the, having a child with autism and that your family's experience with this is what brought your attention uh, here. But I am forever grateful that you have, have chosen to use your time and energy uh, to expose this for others, because I think you're bringing something to the, to the fore that's incredibly important. Uh, even, you know, I, I, Lay people certainly can't be expected to read all of this. I, as a physician, as I said, uh, full disclosure, uh, really did not understand the depth of the corruption and the fraud that has gone on here and the fact that we cannot rely on the, quote, scientific literature as it's been presented to us. So if it were not for people like you and, and Bobby Kennedy and others to really get into the weeds and, and demand this data be released, uh, we simply wouldn't know about it. So. Thank you for that. And I appreciate it. I hope you'll come back. I Best of luck on the book. We will continue to promote it. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Kelly. It's a pleasure and an honor to be able to join you today. Thank you. We'll talk soon. And thanks to all of you for, for being here. Um, we've got, uh, and before I forget, by the way, a um, great conversation with him. I'm so happy that, that I was able to do this. Um, before I forget, however, um, 
my true heartfelt uh, gratitude to uh, folks who have sent well wishes and prayers and, and good thoughts since my recent uh, diagnosis of breast cancer. I am doing uh, well, recovering from surgery and in in now in my uh, second week of radiation. So uh, I truly appreciate the, uh, the thoughts and prayers. Keep them coming. Uh, I am a firm believer that that is what is going to allow me to crush this like a bug. So um, I am not going anywhere anytime soon. I've got lots of lots of work to do. Um, Caleb, if you show the, our upcoming schedule tomorrow, I'm back tomorrow with Drew. He will be back in his usual seat. We've got uh, John Phillips, uh, co or a host of the uh, John Phillips show on uh, KABC out of Los Angeles. I, for for 18 months, I was the daily voice of the doctor hour on that show in the, in the first year and a half of the pandemic. So I'll be back with my uh, with my buddy John Phillips. Uh, then Drew has Candace Owens coming, and then I'll be back the following week with uh, with my friend Pierre Corey for an update. He has been uh, a true champion during this entire pandemic, so it'll be great to catch up with him. Uh, take care. Thank you for being with us, and I will see you again tomorrow. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Yeah.